Hello and welcome to Mixed Feelings, a podcast about news, politics, and pop culture on the Relay FM network. I'm Quinn Rose, and I'm here as always with my co-host Jillian Parker. Hi everyone. Hi Quinn. Hey Jillian. How you doing? I'm exhausted, but I'm doing well. How are you, Quinn? I'm not exhausted and also doing well, so I think I'm winning. Yeah, clearly you're thriving. Well, I'm on vacation, so... Right. You make some good points. Yeah, hi everyone. I'm still working at my school's graduation, um, and I get the really early shifts, which I thought was going to be really fun because I am a morning person, but doing like 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. shifts isn't ideal, (laughs) especially since I'm doing a lot of manual labor, which I know my parents would be very proud of me for because it builds character, but it's a lot in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, I would not survive that. I've been getting up earlier, though. You'd be proud of me. I'm trying. But sometimes I'm definitely not getting up four in the morning early because that's not a human time to be awake. 4 a.m. is when my shift starts tomorrow. So guess who's waking up at 3 a.m.? Oh, my God. What? I'm so horrified by this. It literally starts at 4 a.m. is my shift. Why are you even here? Just go to bed. Just go to bed now. (laughs) You can record me when I'm sleeping, right? That would be a really entertaining podcast. Oh, yeah. I'll just introduce all of the topics and then we'll cut to you like snoring noises. I don't even know if you snore, but um, and then it'll come back to me and I'll introduce the next topic and that'll be the whole show. Amazing. Fantastic. This is probably about on par with some of our commentary anyway. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Yeah, probably. We are unfortunately starting this week off with a horrible thing that happened. Um, there was a terrorist attack at an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, England. Um, Right at the end of the concert, um, a man set off a bomb and killed 22 people and injured at least 59 more. Um, So the the names from that of the victims that were killed are still being released. um, But some of them so far are teenagers children um there was an eight-year-old who was named um as someone who did not survive this and it it is a completely despicable act um and because i mean like it was an ariana grande concert that's going to be a lot of young girls and teenagers there to celebrate someone that they like and i i I go to a lot of concerts, and I cannot even imagine what this is. They think, uh, the government thinks that another attack is imminent and is deploying military personnel. Um, So we don't know if he was acting alone or part of a group. I know that ISIS did claim responsibility, um, but this honestly has, this has been the worst terror attack in the UK since 2005. The UK government um, is currently on critical alert, which is an incredibly high security level. They haven't been that high for a while. Um, and people are, the, the government and the military is, is very concerned right now about um, the possibility of another attack very soon, um, which I, I tell you is filling my mother with joy since I'm going to London in a month. But that's life right now, unfortunately. Yeah, this is just so awful. And you made an interesting point uh, before when you said that it's just absolutely despicable that this happened, you know, at a concert, um, especially a concert targeted for for young adults. Um, I know Ariana Grande is absolutely devastated. Uh, She tweeted, Facebooked and Instagrammed, I believed, um, that 
she's and I quote, broken from the bottom of my heart. I am so, so sorry. I don't have words. And her tour has actually been suspended to pay respects to, to pay respect to the victims. And I, as of now, they've canceled at least six tour dates. Um, so I, I, I can't even imagine what she's going through right now. I mean, just the guilt must be unbearably painful. Um, or this entire situation, yeah. And I mean, obviously, like, the... F- victims and the families of the victims are the ones that were hurt the most mm-hmm, definitely but i mean everyone who was in that arena is obviously traumatized by what happened and i can't even imagine like i i've heard seen news stories that that she's absolutely devastated and she feels like it's her fault and <laughs> let's be clear that it is no one's fault except the person who brought a bomb it is not because there of course anytime anything happens People come out with the horrible hot takes about how, like, there were there were idiots tweeting things like, "Oh yeah, like last time I listened to Ariana Grande, it almost killed me too." What? Who says that? An eight year old girl was killed. Like, have some humanity. That's yeah. I'm all for freedom of speech and stuff, but like, there is a time and a place. Um, that's just oh my god, that's just awful. Yeah, there's a difference between a legal right and being a a human yeah exactly decency is so rare nowadays this is a comparison that's been made by other people and it was one of the first things that i thought of um is the similarities between this um and the pulse shooting uh which was the um the shooting in the pulse nightclub in orlando last year in which 49 people were murdered and just that it's such a similar situation in that People gather together to enjoy art and culture, and it was a place where they felt safe, where they were celebrating, where they were there to be part of a community, and that was ripped away from them. And that kind of that kind of thing, like that's not something that just affects the people who were there. Um, it doesn't just hurt the people who were there physically, but just that, but hurts the whole community, um, and fills people with fear who were are all the way across the world. Yeah, I just think that this this preying upon or targeting of just these collectives is just it's just terrifying because it's like n- literally nowhere is safe anymore. Like. It's gotten to the point where, like, you want to go to the movies? Well, you have to be careful. Like, that's... And I just don't... That's just ridiculous. And this is the goal. This is why these places are being targeted in order to... That's why it's called terrorism, because it inspires terror. Um, It's not just about hurting people. It's about making them afraid. And that's... And that's why that we are so much more scared as a people of terrorism than we are things like drunk driving even though way more people are killed in drunk driving accidents than they are by terror attacks i think it's just because like with with drunk driving it's just like there's always like a scientific explanation behind it right like they're um you drink a lot and then you drive and obviously you're reckless because your body can't isn't responding the way it should you know um as opposed to when you're sober but just this 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 innate fear and just driving you know like the community's emotions and then just the what's going on through you know the terrorists mind like during all of this like it's just not it's just 
it's so terrifying because it's unknown, because it's more abstract than just saying, oh, well, he ended up, uh, you know, running his car into something because he was drunk. Like, it's just so much more, um, so much more abstract. And because in just in that way, naturally, it's just more terrifying because we don't know exactly what's going on. I read an article one time about the way that we talk about terror um, and the model that we use to talk about terror because in recent years we've had the quote-unquote war on terror like this is a war and we are fighting a force that can be fought um, with physical weapons that's the imagery that that model conjures this was a while ago that I read this so I really don't remember um, who wrote it but the author was arguing that we should be talking about terrorism as a disease and we should be visualizing it as um, a contagion that spreads um, and needs to be fought with in, in a model similar to healthcare and preventive care as opposed to this physical weapon implication of the phrasing of war just just going off of what you were talking about how this is such an abstract thing and I'm, and I'm not saying that changing the way we model terror in our minds would necessarily do anything to make it less scary because I think it just innately is it like that's why it works well I, work is an is a strong word because we still continue as a society and no terror attack has ever been able to derail us as a society but it has been it has changed us but there is the possibility that being able to talk about it and think about it in a different way will maybe help us understand it in a way that we don't currently do so. Yeah, and I just think it's interesting how you did say, like, it is a contagion, like, fear is contagious, and that sort of, you know, leads to the whole mob mentality and just this banding together against the other, whatever group that other may be, um, because in times of fear, it's just, like, easier uh, even though if it's it may not be completely based on you know something that's accurate um, and I think that's actually one of the more dangerous consequences of terrorism obviously besides you know the awful tragedies that happen to families but just that this this continues like this just breeds more fear mm-hmm. and in our current society it's breeding Islamophobia which is a horrible thing I've never been asked to answer for the actions of the Ku Klux Klan but I know that Muslim people are asked to answer for the the actions of ISIS. And that like that is the comparison to be made. And it doesn't make any sense on either side. Yeah, another thing that happened that's absolutely awful. Um, a woman was killed and 22 were injured um, as someone drove their car into a crowd at Times Square. Um, and... It was not terrorism. It was actually, the driver was 26 years old. He was a U.S. Navy veteran and a U.S. citizen, and he's in custody. Um, de Blasio said that there's no indication that this was terrorism. Um, and it turns out that it was, you know, it, it, he was under the influence, um, and that's why he caused this death. But it's... It's just, it just breeds, you know, again, this fear and how, like, immediately people jump to, oh my god, is it terrorism? I think it was interesting because I was following this story as it came out, um, and everyone was freaking out at the beginning, being like, oh my god, because there have been a lot of um, automobile-related terrorist attacks, and people were thinking that it was um, a deliberate attack, and then it came out that um, he was on drugs, and it was 
not an accident because they have some very concerning statements from him but like he was altered and that's what it was it wasn't any kind of larger plot and then the story just kind of died um there was still there was a bit more about like the cleanup and and um a little bit more about the person who was killed um which is so horrible but there wasn't any kind of follow-up after that um and people seemed to in general lose interest in what this story was because it wasn't terror um you know it was just a a, a high driver um and, you know, that's the kind of thing that we just live with as a society and isn't given the same amount of attention. I think it's also something that, like, relates to what we were talking about before, how we're able to wrap our minds around this because it's just, it is much more concrete. There is a scientific reason behind, you know, um, his actions because he was under the influence. But it, it is just extremely intriguing how, like, once they f- once people find out that it's no longer terrorism... Um, like interest declines like exponentially there's part of that that is sad because part of the reason that general interest in it declines is because people can't politicize it and it's not going to become an argument on one side or the other um, for someone's political views to either confirm or deny like nobody has political views about drunk driving we all agree that's bad Um, and so when people can't use it for ammo anymore, then it's like, oh, okay, and people move on. Yeah, I just think that's absolutely horrible. Like the fact that we can use these stories and spin them, however, or if it, if the circumstances are uh, appropriate, just spin them and work them into you know our political agenda to try to get a point across or to try to use as some some sort of evidence when really we should be focusing, you know, on on the families and you know, trying to rebuild or restore or, like, help them and the victims instead of, you know, using this for our own personal gain. Yeah, so, and on that point, um, at this time, all of our thoughts are with the families of the victims, and I hope that they can take some time to heal. And there's a lot to talk about in the way that media covers and politicizes tragedies like this. And so my hope for them is that the media leaves them alone and gives them the time to process and heal and move on from these tragedies. Um, if you like, there's also going to be some links in the show notes just to some funds that have put, put together to help these families um, if you're looking for something to do to help. So speaking of the politicization of ex- exploitation of media, Roger Ailes died this week. <laughs> Um, Roger Ailes was basically ousted out of Fox News 10 months ago um, because all these women came out saying that he sexually harassed them and that it was just a lot of obviously bad publicity for Fox. And so they were like, ooh, okay, like, let's get rid of him. But, you know, he still walked away with like millions of dollars. So I'm not sure how much of a punishment that was. Um, But an interesting article came out by Monica Lewinsky saying how um, not only has he died, but hopefully the culture that he cultivated died as well. Roger Ailes was the chairman and CEO of the whole Fox News Corporation for a long time, and he basically made Fox what it was. And I didn't actually know about this before I read um, Lewinsky's op-ed about it and then did some more research, and that he really kind of, first of all, made Fox... Um, what it is during the Lewinsky scandal and then also just kind of pioneered this whole method of quote-unquote journalism 
and feeding off of fear. This is going to be a themed episode, apparently. <laughs> when the Lewinsky scandal broke, um, Fox News was really struggling, and then they latched onto that, and it was 24-7 coverage, and it was all of these rumors and scandals and just fed off of each other and pushed... And the other media was doing the same, but they were the ones who were really pioneering this and transforming to this into a circus. And not to turn this into a whole debate about what happened with Clinton and Lewinsky, because that's a whole conversation that's had been had millions of times. But I being her in that position as at 22 years old, and suddenly your entire life and everything about you is being scrutinized and devoured by the media is horrible she's she was 22 years old and i'm not saying that she's perfect but you know like she's 22 like we all make mistakes like this is this is just this is this could um this just reminds me it's like oh you get your first job after college and then this is what happens to you and it's just it's just absolutely awful um and you know this did affect her life forever and i just think it's awful that fox news did capitalize on this and became well-known, became popular, uh, made a lot of money off of basically destroying this poor woman's life and her reputation. It's also, I've, I've read many stories um, in the past week about the culture of Fox News that Ailes pioneered um, and the way that it targeted a, basically a whole generation of people and it attacked the things they were most afraid of and it gave them easy targets to direct their fear towards and those targets were people like Barack Obama and immigrants and Muslims and people that fear was and therefore anger was easy to point at. I'm I'm not saying Fox News has single-handedly made America what it is today because there are so many things at play, but I'm saying that it is definitely one of those things. Yeah, it's... Oh God, it's just not... It, it's just... This is just so... I guess, kind of weird. I don't know. I, I think growing up, um, I was pretty much like pretty much in the dark because I knew that my parents were like very strong proponents of you're going to have to deal with the news like eventually. But like right now, like enjoy, you know, this brief period of innocence and of, you know, not really knowing about all the awful things going on, or at least not watching them or hearing about them every day. Um, but, like, my parents watched, like, all sort of news webs news sources and read all sorts of newspapers and whatnot. But they definitely have watched Fox News and they've definitely, you know, watched The O'Reilly Factor and things like that. Um, and so I sort of grew up with Fox News. And so just it, it's just weird, like, learning all about this network that I didn't really know about when I was younger um, because I was more ignorant. But, like, learning about this from a, this whole other weird awful perspective and I don't know it just made me think a lot about <laughs> about news in general um and just about how we take awful things and try to capitalize them on just just ruining people's lives and I don't know it just makes me it just makes me really sad and it, it's super depressing it it is really sad um and you it's um, very commonly known that Fox News was created specifically to be a right-wing leaning news network um, and, to, and to provide a conservative voice because um, the founders perceived the most of mainstream media to be liberal leaning and so they wanted to provide a counterbalance and I think that 
is a great goal and genuinely although I do not agree with um most conservative ideas I think that um like that that half of the country deserves to have a voice and I think that they deserve to have a news network that actually is fair and balanced um and that actually is going to provide a reasonable voice and that's not what Fox is and maybe it could have been once, um, and that was what it was intended to be, but I think that w- the second Ailes got a hold of it, that all went out the window. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I think my parents liked watching Fox just because it did provide, you know, this nice counterbalance, because my family is very conservative. Um, and, like, my dad always said, you, ne- you know, you should never believe what the news says, like, on either side, but, like, it's nice to see other events, and it's nice to, you know sort of recognize that there are people who do think similarly to you about like especially like economically which is what my family was interested in um but I think what this awful man did was just he created this sort of like this cult environment that just completely destroyed any potential that Fox News had you know long term in becoming this conservative voice or even more sadly um the whole Republican Party has shifted underneath us. Um, and so Fox News is kind of the voice of the current Republican Party, but that's not what we see in the world as like the proper conservative voice. <laughs> what do you mean? The Republicans are doing so great right now. They have a flawless reputation. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, Republican Party's not doing too hot. It's pretty, I mean, Fox News pretty much is like, the GOP news network of choice. I mean, they are very, they are basically the, um, the mainstream represent- representatives of the Republicans, and it's just not really a great image um, for the Republicans, especially now, especially with all of these, these scandals and what happened with Bill O'Reilly and again, what happened with um, Roger Ailey. It's just, ugh, it's a mess. Yeah, they're going down recently. And I mean, they're going down because they're, they've are they been sexually harassing women for years. So I'm glad they're finally being taken down. But wow, just, just dropping like flies. Yeah, I mean, this is just not, this is, this is just awful. Um, yeah, they really aren't doing too hot. They really don't have a lot of or any redeeming qualities left. Um, yeah, so this is not, this is not ideal. Speaking of all this partisanship in media conversation, um, I'd like to apologize again for cutting off the conversation last week. If you listened to last week's episode, it was shorter than usual because my internet was basically non-functional and I literally could not hear what Julian was saying. Um, And I had another show to record later that night, so I ended up just cutting it off. But when I actually got the recording from Julian later and heard what she was saying, it was really interesting. And I was like, oh, we should come back to this. Um, And it was about... Um, specifically this New York Times article that was written about Jimmy Fallon um, and how Jimmy Fallon used to be like one of the most if not the most successful late night host and then he invited Trump on his show and he treated him very friendly and you know haha we're having a great time here and people really really did not react well Um, and he's still like he is the symbol basically of nonpartisanship in late night comedy everyone else is very political and that's what people are watching um and so the question becomes like there's a lot of questions here 
um, are we truly going to punish Jimmy Fallon forever to be for being nice to Donald Trump? Um, do you have to be partisan to be successful in late night comedy now? Do you have to be partisan to be successful anywhere? A lot of stuff going on here. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, um, Jimmy Fallon got so much for so much last back about, you know, being friendly and being chummy with um, Donald Trump. And it just brings up this question, like, to be successful, to be famous, to be liked, you sort of have to pick a side. And I think Jimmy Fallon, you know, built his career on being this this general comedian. Like, he doesn't have to be super active politically in order to gain a crowd. But now, I guess now with just the way, I mean, it's so fractioned right now that it's like, oh, having no opinion is worse than having an opinion that's like, opposite than somebody else you know like it's just his lack of opinion is actually harming him where I think in the past it would have you know it bring it would have brought more people together but just because of the political climate and the way things are right now it's not picking a side is actually more harmful I think that's really true and and I think it's because if you look at someone um like John Oliver is one of the quintessential examples of this um and he has a very smart show it's very funny it's very political and it's primarily liberal. Um, and first of all, because it's very easy to make fun of Donald Trump. That's another thing is like there's even though everything is awful and on fire, there's also so much comedy in Donald Trump's entire administration because he's a ridiculous man. Um, and so when you're choosing not to make fun of him, you're kind of losing out on a lot of easy humor that people are going for right now. But anyway, so John Oliver builds this show the people who watch his show are people who already have liberal ideas. And so he sticks with that. They stick with that. Everything's great. Jimmy Fallon, if he doesn't put out a particular political idea, people from both sides watch him. And then the second he steps over anyone's line, he suddenly alienates that half of his audience. As if he, had, But if he had started with one side and just kept with it, he wouldn't be alienating um, anyone by what he's saying at any point. Yeah, I think also what Jimmy Fallon wanted to create from the beginning was like I think he wanted to brand his um his brand his nonpartisanship because you know there is so much political satire and there Donald Trump is such an easy target and I actually think it makes it that makes it harder for him if he's like not using Donald Trump comedy in his acts like because he just like you said he just like loses half his material he loses like potential material right there um and I think he sort of wants to create, you know, this this more homey, this more friendly environment. Um, I, I like to compare this, uh, or this just reminds me of what Ellen DeGeneres said about when she was just for, first getting into comedy and humor. And she said that she wanted to, um, she wanted to show people that it was possible to be really funny without necessarily like making fun of people in like very mean ways, which is, which is a lot, what a lot of comedians do and successfully too, like ripping apart people in humorous ways is very easy, but I think Ellen DeGeneres did not want to do that. And so that's sort of what she founded her, like her show on and her reputation. And I think uh, Jimmy Fallon wanted to create this idea of, you know, nonpartisanship and then just of like people gathering together just to like laugh about, you know, stuff without necessarily taking a side in politics. Um, and he wanted to brand that. And then I think that sort of just backfired on him because of how a uh, fraction the political climate is right now. And he was doing very well um, until that Trump interview and he never really bounced back from that. And I think part of the reason he didn't bounce back is because he never publicly addressed it until like two weeks ago with this article. Um, and I and I think that 
and it's always sometimes people's apologies just make things infinitely worse um and not not and i will say for me personally i did not approve of him doing that as like i didn't like that he held that interview i am not in charge of jimmy fallon and i'm not saying that he necessarily had to apologize for the brand of show that he has because you're right in that it, that is his whole thing like it wasn't like this was some kind of special nonpartisan or like going against his usual partisan ideas like that 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 that's his whole thing but anyway i just um i want to be clear like I, I may sound a little bitter about some of this stuff and i am i truly am <laughs> but that's my personal feelings as opposed to the larger picture yeah <laughs> Um, two nuggets of wisdom here, or information, I guess, whatever. Um, always apologize, but never be sorry, is something that <laughs> I found on the internet. That is that is not what I said. <laughs> and it, no, 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 it, that is not what you said at all. But I just felt like, <laughs> I just wanted to bring oh, it out Oh, this is there. just your advice. This is just my <laughs> advice in general. Always apologize, but never be sorry. Um, and I sort of think that Jimmy Fallon may have tried to do that or something when he did come out with this apology. But also, like, like you said, Quinn, like, this is not... This wasn't out of the blue. Like, it's not that he was partisan all this time and then he invited Donald Trump on and was, like, super chummy with him. Um, I think, like, he he's not Oprah. He's not Katie Couric. He's not going to have this hard-hitting interview where he's questioning Donald Trump on his values or lack thereof. Like, it's not... It's a comedy show and it's, like, a very lighthearted sort of family TV thing going on. And so he's not going to be, you know, interrogating... Donald Trump like that's just not that wasn't I don't think that was ever part of the original plan um so I think the fact that yes while I may not have agreed or I know a lot of people may not have agreed with the way that he treated Donald Trump and in this friendly easygoing manner um I don't necessarily I don't think I blame him for uh, I don't think I have I don't I don't think I can blame him for like doing it does that make sense like like, I understand where he was coming from because he was trying to be as nonpartisan as possible, but that just ended up, you know, not working out for him um, business-wise. I think this is one of those situations that um, we should all strive for as people is that we can personally disapprove of something without condemning it as evil, um, which is something I strive to do because it's hard because your brain wants to be, like, bad. <laughs> but... Like, recognizing that there is nuance here. Yeah. I think I think part of, actually, this is going to get deep real quick, but I think part of growing up is realizing that the world is more than just, you know, black and white, that there are these shades in between. And I think that's something that I've struggled with, especially, you know, in college, because I'm very, like, very black and white thinking, like, this is good, this is bad, this is wrong, this is right. Again, probably because of my Catholic upbringing. But still, like, there are a lot of nuances and... I don't know. I, I Are there degrees of right versus wrong? Um, I don't know. But I just, I, I realize, or I'm starting to realize that I don't think things can be so clear cut. To quote a wise woman named J.K. Rowling, the world isn't divided between good people and Death Eaters. In other news, Ancestry.com is in the news lately because of this, um, of this article basically with the, with the subheading, read the complete terms of service. Um, basically what happened was 
Ancestor DNA is basically this company where you can send in your saliva and for $99, they will break down, you know, your ethnicity, where you came from, all of this stuff. Um, you and your family can do it and you can create all these weird like family trees and you can know more about your family history and things like that. Um, but in the, in the terms and services, someone pointed out that, oh, well, like, Technically, Ancestry DNA owns your DNA, and so this is going to lead to a lot of problems later down the road and um, things like that. And Quinn and I both thought this was really interesting because of these terms and conditions. Like, it's just, it brings up a lot of, um, a lot of relevant subjects in the media lately, especially concerning privacy and health insurance, because, you know, companies, if they have this genetic information, they can use this against you and say, like, in saying, if you say you want to buy health insurance, but maybe they can deny you because, you know, you do have this genetic history um, that may not prove favorable for um, affordable health insurance. So this resonates with me personally, considering I did AncestryDNA.com. And I paid $99 to have my spit surveyed. So that was fun. Well, to clarify something, we do have, currently there's a law called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act of 2008. Um, and I definitely had that memorized and didn't just read it off of something. But <laughs> uh, so like you currently, you're not allowed to discriminate on against someone based on genetic information, which is good because that is some dystopia or stuff right there. But yeah, um, like most laws about uh, quality life um you know who knows if it'll be around after the next four years but we'll see about that um but people are really concerned right now about ancestry and con specifically um because like there was this blog article that was written by an attorney um that people were really that about how it it once you submit your data they own your data and they can do what they want with it um and people got really freaked out because they thought some people interpreted that as like they lost their own ownership of their DNA, which would be really dystopian. That's not true. You retain ownership of your DNA, but they, but then Ancestry.com has it licensed. Um, and so, and they say they haven't done anything with it, but they technically could because you also waive legal rights to sue them over this, over what they do with it. And they do use it for third-party research. Um, you can You can choose to opt out of this, but... They'll submit your aggregated anonymized data. I'm using air quotations uh, for, to use for research purposes. And they do get compensated for some of that. So, you know, that's a little gray area right there. And I'm using air quotes because anonymized data is a lie. You, especially stuff like genetic data, people can find you. Yeah, people can definitely find you. And also, like... Obviously, if your DNA is out there, then there's a good chance that if you really wanted to, you could find out like other people's genetic information that are related to you. So, I mean, you could not only be screwing yourself over when it comes to privacy, but also maybe like your sibling, um, which is just like super interesting to me. I think that, you know, when you give up sort of these, when you give uh, Ancestry DNA this license to sort of do what they want with your data, it is like this huge trust exercise. And I did read, I did not read all of the um, terms and agreements, obviously, because who does? But I did recognize that, okay, you know, like I am technically giving up all of this information um, and they could probably use this against me, but I'm still going to do it anyway, which may, I'm, which I may regret, you know, like 10 years from now, but right now I'm, I'm I'm okay with it. <laughs> You're very laissez-faire about 
privacy. You're like, uh, my DNA is out there. It's fine. I feel like I'm very laissez-faire about everything, especially the economy. But, (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) but at least I'm consistent. That you are. You are nothing if not consistent. Yeah, it was actually, (laughs) I wrote some, like, very, uh, probably disturbing notes in um the doc between Quinn and me because I was just like yeah I should be concerned because they have this license to my DNA and they can probably legally do whatever they want with it and I should probably be more concerned but I don't really care if health insurance companies don't want to insure me then I just won't have health insurance if I get sick whatever survival of the fittest evolution clearly I did not make the cut I'll get over it it's fine and Quinn was like Julian there was something wrong with you (laughs) You do realize that's a horrible thing to say because there are people out there who don't have health insurance and then they die, right? Like, that's that's not like a... That's a real thing that happens to people. That's not funny. Yeah. I'm aware. But, like, I also, like, don't... Like, I'm not going to be... I'm not going to, like... Because I, I, I obviously recognize that, but then that does not give me any license for me to be like, oh, like, this is bad, like, blah, 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 considering, you know, politically, I'm not for health insurance free health insurance for everyone. So like I if if I'm going to be wrong, at least I'm going to be consistently wrong in all facets, you know? Again, you are you are consistent. I will give you that. Like you are even even on things I do not agree with you on, I can never say that you are hypocritical. <laughs> if you're if you're against health insurance for one person, you're against health insurance for yourself as well. <laughs> exactly. And I think that you should be. Like you can't you can't say like you're better than somebody else. Like that's just not if yeah that's just that's just my view and whatever it's fine so i'm very (laughs) i'm not concerned about this at all even though i probably should be um but yeah that's that's my opinion on this yeah putting aside the existence of health insurance um yeah i have not done anything like this not that i think i mean i don't know my dna is probably out there somewhere somehow you know it there is there any privacy no um, and that's a really sad thing. <laughs> I think it's just, like, fascinating to me that, you know, like, nothing really is anonymous and nothing really is... I mean, like, once you put something out there, it's out there forever. Um, and I think, like, like growing up or something, you like, oh, well, like, if I delete it, like, it'll be fine. If I take down this picture off Facebook or even, like, with innocent, more innocent stuff like that and not, you know, genetic information, like, oh, if I take this down, like, it'll be fine. Um, no, it's still out there. And, like, also, uh, I think in one of the terms and services or agreements that Ancestry DNA has is if you really want to, you can, you know, opt to take down your data and you can say like hey like I don't want you to have this information anymore and then they're legally required to get rid of it but like is it really ever gone like that's you know that's what I think I don't think it's ever truly gone I don't think yeah when something is digital it's it just always exists and I don't really understand where it is or who has it but I know it's out there Google has it I'm sure it's in the cloud which is some, just somebody else's bigger computer. But yeah, it's in the cloud. It's everything is in the cloud. You know, that's where that's where the internet is. That's where the YouTube is. The Facebook. It's all up there. Yes, the Facebook. And techies can get mad at me because I know the technical definition of the cloud is not just somebody else's bigger computer. It's all of this like mumbo jumbo witchcraft, whatever. But to me, it's just somebody else's bigger computer. Um, and that may be wrong technically, but that's just how I'm viewing it. It's fine. Whatever. 
Yeah, there are definitely no tech people who listen to this podcast who are going to want to correct you on that. Yeah, you can DM me and rant at me, but I'm just gonna be like, you're <laughs> do not you're... do not tell them they can DM you and rant at you. No, you can't. I mean, you. I mean, I'm not gonna say anything. I'm not gonna say. I'm not gonna try to argue and argue that I'm right. Like I, I don't know that I. No, that's not the technical definition of the cloud, but like, I don't know what you want to say to me, or I don't know if I can say anything that will make you feel better. So I don't know. Whatever. I'm very laissez faire today, I guess. I think working these really early shifts is starting to get to me because by 6 p.m., I'm just like not a human anymore. Like, I'm just like, eh, this might as well happen. Yeah, honestly, she's so tired. Like, you should definitely ask Jillian for money right now. Uh, no, because I am consistent. <laughs> so, The Bachelorette premiered. Uh, which is a show I do not watch, but I am culturally aware of as the, the whole, a huge cultural phenomenon. And this season is getting a lot of attention because they have the first ever Black Bachelorette, Rachel Lindsay, um, who was one of the finalists on last season of The Bachelor, which I think is usually how this works. I don't, I don't really know. I've only started really paying attention to what's going on with these shows in the last year. But anyway, so of course, there's been a lot of controversial articles already, including one that the headline of the tweet was new bachelorette rachel Lindsay is proving black women actually do like men outside their race which people had a big problem with because it was i think it was first of all the word actually in that sentence um and also this focus on that implying that like 99 out of 100 black women only want to date black men um which is a weird implication for a lot of reasons and the, the whole article was a little weird. Um, and so that actually got so much negative attention that it was taken down. Um, but there's also been other articles talking about um, race in general on The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and the whole topic of interracial dating and the way that we talk about it in our society. Yeah, I just think the topic of interracial dating is just... I mean... I actually had a discussion with a friend about this today. Um, and... She's part Asian and she's dating this guy who's white. And apparently he like asked her like, oh, like, how do you feel about being in an interracial relationship? And she kind of just like looked at him like, I don't, I mean, I guess we are in an interracial relationship, but I never thought about it that way. I kind of just thought that I'm dating you because I like you. Um, I never really thought about your race. Um, And so I like, that just like really resonated with me because I used to never think about who I dated or like the race of the guys I've dated. And I didn't think about me dating white guys until college. I thought I was just dating people because I liked them. And I, but I think that just, at least for me, race became a lot more prevalent as I got older, which is like paradoxical in a way. Um, Actually, my freshman year, I think I first recognized this or that interracial dating was a thing or something that some people like weren't comfortable with because um, my freshman year of high school, I really liked this guy and he liked me too, but he didn't want to date me because I was Asian. Uh. Um, and so I like found this out and I was like, wow, like, wow. Okay. Like I see how it is. Fa- uh, Facebook stalked him a few days ago, found out that he is now actually dating this girl who's Asian. And I was just like, oh my God. And instead of being mad, I was like, oh my God, I just cured racism. But alas, <laughs> I mean, I, that's what I thought, but like, I just think <laughs> it's fine, whatever. But yeah, I mean, this whole concept of interracial dating is just like really fascinating because I think it just became more relevant to my life as I got older um, instead of, you know, realize really recognizing it when I was when I was younger. What do you think, Quinn? 
Yeah. Um, so I have also been interracial relationships and I have kind of similar thoughts about it. Um, so I grew up in Maine and for those who don't know, Maine is an extremely white state, um, statistically overall. And so all through high school, um, all of my relationships were, were with white men. Um, and I am white. And, and then once I got to college, um, I got in a relationship with an Asian guy and we were together for like a year and a half before he looked at me one day and went, you know, we're technically in an interracial relationship. And I laughed at him because there's no, there was no technically about this. Like he was 100% Asian and I am 100% white. <laughs> um, so it was very funny the way he phrased it. But it was also, I, and I don't want to make generalizations because we're just two people talking about our own individual experiences. But from what I know from my experiences and, and what I've heard from my friends um, is there's not a lot of drama, at least in our area, associated with white Asian relationships. I think they're very right. common at our school, and there's not a lot of baggage associated with them. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm currently in an inter interracial relationship, and, like, it's not – I mean, it's something that we talk about, but it's terms of, like, we talk about our families and our backgrounds, and not the we're not sitting there being like, hey, we're different. Let's talk about that. It's just, like, no, us sharing our experiences with each other. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, definitely. And also, like, just the idea of me being in, in, like, being in a defined interracial relationship is just, like, weird for me, considering, like, you know, like, I'm adopted, so my family's white, and my white boyfriend in high school had to teach me how to use chopsticks because we were getting sushi. Like, I don't know, I just feel like I don't have that cultural background to, you know, really, really be like, oh, I'm coming from, like, a completely different culture. So this idea of interracial relationships is just, you know, just, just interesting from my perspective. But I guess what this article was talking about was not, was focusing, you know, on more black-white relationships as opposed to Asian-white, which is, you know, like Quinn said, something that is very common at our school. Yeah, and and I think that culturally, um, nationwide and in most places, there is a lot more um, weight associated with it, with relationships um between white and black partners um and i mean because of a lot of reasons um because racism has always been targeted most intensely um at black people and and just a lot of cultural and historical baggage associated with that and now and i think the stereotypes in particular that are associated um with black women and black men um paint them very badly when they're in relationships with white people and of course like on an individual level it's about who you're individually attracted to and I know lots and lots of people in interracial relationships and it's not an issue between the two people like they're fine and it's more an issue with the people around them and don't get me wrong there are people who get into inter interracial relationships and suck because they're doing it because they have some kind of fetish and that's disturbing but i mean like in healthy relationships it tends to be the society around them that's the issue there's nothing wrong with them <laughs> yeah do not get me started on the subject of yellow fever but um yeah i mean yeah, that's an interesting point, how really, like, this idea of interracial dating and interracial relationships, it only becomes more of an issue when, like, I mean, I guess I only started realizing it when people were pointing it out to me, you know? Like, I don't know, man. It's it's weird. Well, you said earlier that you thought it was paradoxical that you cared more about race when you're older, but I think that makes perfect sense. Kids don't understand 
like differences between people until adults teach them to teach it to them and i think the same is true about dating or race and dating but just um long later on in life because you're not thinking about dating when you're a kid yeah that's true but also like i don't know i think i had I, th- I think I sort of had an identity crisis when I was younger because I didn't really get the idea of race. Like, this is going to be, like, totally politically incorrect right now, but I just, like, I just, like, didn't think that there was more than one ra- I, like, thought just people had different skin tones because some people, like, stayed out in the sun longer. And I, like, know that's complete. But I was also five. Like, come on. Like, cut me some slack. Um, and so I- my parents never really explained race to me, and I never really understood that I looked different from my parents because my parents are white and I'm Asian and I never understood the difference between like races like I just didn't I don't know I think it's just interesting but um yeah I guess I guess you are right that like as you get older it's more it it is it it becomes you know more apparent because it's not really I want to say it's you I think it's just because society in general just makes their opinions more well known and you become more aware of them because you know you've been around longer and you have all of these experiences i would just like to say right now this is why sociology should be required in elementary schools (laughs) (laughs) exactly that is my proposition for the education system i think we've made this clear um throughout the conversation but this is something that is very different on the individual level versus the collective level and we talk about our individual experiences and we talk about what we perceive um, as being something associated with interracial relationships on a cultural level. But like we are only two people um, who represent only a very limited scope of this conversation. And we haven't even tried to touch on like Latinx relationships with other races um, and the perspectives of men in interracial relationships and stuff like that. So there's a lot out there. And this is something that people tend not to talk about a lot um but in in these kind of deep ways but i think is becoming more and more of a conversation and i think that's good because it's one of those things like the problems have always been there but now we're talking about them and bringing them into the light and so now there's a lot of really good stories um and experiences that you can read out there from different perspectives that i think is really valuable yeah, definitely. And also, I just want to, like, emphasize that really we are, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Like, we are barely scratching the surface when it comes to this. But Quinn made an interesting statement about, like, you know, the individual versus the collective. Um, and this is sort of tangentially related. But my dad was listening to my podcast, and he was like, Jillian, like, I've noticed that you say, oh, I think or I believe a lot. And I was just, like, wondering, like, why do you do that? Like, the, that makes you sound, you know, um, less confident and you know, less self-assured and like, blah, blah, blah. You shouldn't say that. You should just, you know, state your opinion and say that. And I was like, yeah, that's true, dad. But like, I'm not doing it because I'm necessary. I'm unsure about my thing, my, my thoughts. It's more like I learned that as I got older, it's very important to use I statements. Like, I believe this, like, I think that because, you know, it's bad to make generalizations. And he was like, oh my God, like, I didn't think about it that way. Like, okay, like, do you, whatever works. Um, And so I think that just, you know, emphasizes Quinn's point that we are only speaking from our perspectives and we can't make these sweeping generalizations about, you know, what other people are going through. And that's all from us this week. Thank you so much for listening today. If you'd like to find us on Twitter, you can find us at MixedFeelingsFM, where you can tweet at us or send us a DM. You can also find us at Relay.fm slash MixedFeelings, where there is a contact form to send us an email. 
And you can find us in Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a review if you are so inclined. You can find me on Twitter at AspiringRobotFM. You can find me on Twitter at underscore Jillian Parker. Thanks for talking with me today, Jillian. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for talking with me, Quinn. I'm Quinn Rose. I'm Jillian Parker. And these were our mixed feelings. <laughs>